It is good to be with you. If you're here with us last week, we wrapped up our series, The Way, and we are starting a brand new series on the book of Revelation. Uh, last week, Pastor Stan started this series, and so I'm actually going to be kind of jumping in in the middle of chapter one. I would encourage you to go back and watch his sermon if you'd like. He gives a little bit more background into the book, and I'm going to cover a little bit of that tonight, but um, if you want more of that, Stan preached a great sermon last Sunday, so check that out. I'm going to begin by reading our scripture for tonight, which is Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit, when suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in the book everything you see, and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool and white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels and the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's the word of the Lord. So what I want to do tonight, there, there's a lot there and there's a lot um, that we could do with this text. But what I, what I want to do is sort of set up what the book of Revelation is and what it is not. Um, and then I want to take uh, just a few things that I think we can take from um, John's words in Revelation and the words of Jesus himself as he, as he shares these things. And uh, I think it really speaks to where we are in our current situation today. So why are we teaching Revelation? It's a pretty daunting task. And if, it's, if you're experiencing anything like mine, when I grew up, there was sort of a, a stigma around the book of Revelation. I grew up um, during the time when the book Left Behind came out by Jerry B. Jenkins. Tim Lane, anybody remember this? Um, there was a kid series, and so I would read, I read the kid version of it, which is still terrifying. Uh, I remember, like, having, like, being scared of one day waking up and my entire family being gone and raptured and their clothes remaining, and um, I, I actually remember in Sunday school or one of the, somewhere at church, we watched a Jesus video that was a prediction of what the end times would be like, and it, this was for kids, mind you, but there was a guillotine, okay, scary. Um, and if you didn't get the mark of the beast, well, that was it, right? And I, and I have these memories that almost brought fear, right? So when I think about um, what this book means, that was often my association. 
And what we're going to see is actually this book is not simply a book about the future. In fact, it is a word about uh, what the church needs to know here and now and for the last 2,000 years. This was a book written for the church throughout two millennia. And we have a vision in this book of where Jesus is trying to take us and who Jesus is. So what is Revelation? It's three things. Paul shows us, um, it's very clear, he actually uses all three of these terms. One, it's a letter. It's the longest letter in the Bible. Uh, he opens with the infamous grace and peace to you. So this is very clearly uh, the design, similar in which Paul writes the epistles. Um, they are letters specific to a very specific audience, which is important for us to understand that this was written to a very specific group of people in a very specific time, which we'll talk about in a minute. The second thing the book is, is it is a prophecy. Okay, in a prophecy, the way we think about prophecy sometimes is like a prediction or like looking in a crystal ball and seeing the future. But biblical prophecy was more of a declaration. It was, thus saith the Lord. It was a word of God to his people. Um, third, it was an apocalypse. Okay, the Greek word for this is uh, apocalypsis which essentially uh, is where we get the term revelation. It means to reveal, or it's a disclosure, or an unveiling. And so, like I said, in my experience, this, this was not, when I think of apocalypse, I would think about the end, right? The movie Armageddon came out in the 90s. I was thinking end of the world, um, that the world was going to end, and there were going to be a bunch of crazy things that happened. Um, and a lot of people throughout the years actually mostly in the last 50 years, have reinterpreted Revelation in a very literal way. But what the book actually leans into is that it is a book not to give us a fear of the future, but to provide comfort. It is a book of consummation. It is a book that is supposed to comfort the church, specifically the church that is being persecuted. Okay, and so there's a lot of... Um, now, I'll put my cards on the table, okay? I don't believe that the locusts in Revelation were Apache helicopters. I heard that before. I don't believe that the vaccine is a sign of the beast, right? There's a lot of, uh, throughout the years, many people thought different people were the Antichrist. Like, throughout history, some people thought it was Hitler. Some people thought it was Obama, right? Like, there, throughout history, a whole array of people that they assumed was, in fact, the Antichrist. And... If I'm going to be honest with you, that's not what I'm interested in doing is trying to point to exactly what is happening in the future or when Jesus will return or any of those things because I don't think that's what the book of Revelation is really about. The apocalypse is about revealing the full disclosure of Jesus Christ. It's about pulling back the curtain to not only see what's going on in our world but what's going on in the spiritual world. In apocalyptic literature, you'll notice there's going to be a lot of animals and beasts that represent people. Um, you're going to notice that historical events are as a natural phenomenon like floods and earthquakes. You're going to see number, a lot of numbers, and the numbers have significance, specifically the number two, number three, four, five, seven, ten, twelve, hundred forty-four thousand, three and a half, and a thousand. Those specific numbers are the numbers that have significance, and we'll talk about some of them. Um, but it's not like the, there was this book that came out that was like the Bible code, right, where all the numbers like added up to like, you know, unlock some mega mystery. That's not exactly what's going on here. All these things, though, carry significance, 
and they have meaning that would have been understood by its original audience. In one of the books that we're using as sort of a commentary guide written by Daryl Johnson, he, he says this, that apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature sets out to accomplish two things. First, to set the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. And the second is to set the present in light of the invisible realities of the present. It is to help us understand where we are in our moment, but it is also to understand and to pull back the curtain and to see what's going on in the spiritual realm. We'll go ahead and start in verse 9. In verse 9, we see who it was written by and who it was written to. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and in the kingdom. Okay, so we see um, this is written at the, at the end of the first century, and there is about to be some massive persecution that's about to go down. If you remember, in the middle of the first century, there's this guy named Nero, and Nero was kind of the beginning of this persecution, and it was pretty bad. I mean, people being thrown to lions, uh, it was pretty intense that was happening in the middle of the first century. And those who were following Jesus were essentially going to be persecuted by the empire. Following Nero was the emperor Vespian, and in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. You remember Peter and Paul during this time were crucified. Timothy was murdered. And if you think things are bad then, they actually only get worse. Because in 92 AD, Domitian was the emperor, and he was a profoundly insecure man. This emperor was so insecure that he demanded that every single person would bow down to him and call him God. This was the kind of person um, that would require people to give up all of their meaning and purpose and anything that they believed that was outside of the fact that he was, in fact, going to be their Lord. And so he orders all the citizens to worship him, which this is a problem for John and the other Christians, right? Honor Caesar, yes. Respect Caesar, yes. But worship Caesar, no. Declare absolute allegiance to Caesar, absolutely not. And so by this time, um, John gets this revelation. There have already been many who have been, who have been killed, but it's going to get a lot worse. And so many people who read this book were not just going to be killed, but actually worse, possibly tortured. Many people had their arms and legs tied to horses, and then they would take uh, a rod and they would stab the horse, so the horse would buck like a bronco, and their arms would be ripped off, like horrible, torturous things. Uh, many were impaled by stakes. There are stories of people being thrown to lions, people burned with hot oil, like true persecution. And so that's one of the things that I, I want to pause for a minute and just ask the question and, and understand that whom this letter was written to are Christians who are being absolutely and utterly persecuted. And sometimes I think we throw that word around a little too loosely. In our culture, certainly there are places where people are hostile to Christians. But I actually think living in the Midwest, in the Bible Belt, that actually Christianity gives you some sort of social capital in a lot of places. And I don't sense that kind of persecution and so I think it actually speaks a little bit of a different message to us in some ways. But there are parts in the world that do have persecution. I just got off the phone today with my brother who was planning to go to Taiwan to do mission work. And he was telling me about a couple in Tibet um, who basically were pushed to the outside of their culture because of their belief in Jesus. 
They couldn't shop at the market. They couldn't engage in what normal people would do in their city. The village they had lived in their entire life. They have now been pushed away to the margins. He told me about a missionary friend of his in Turkey who, when he gave his life to Christ, has, I think it's been 10 years since he's seen his daughter, since he's seen his wife, since he sees any of his family, he's being completely ostracized. Right? I'm hearing these stories of actual, what I would call persecution, that's happening in our world today. So yes, it does happen, but I think sometimes we, we need to really think about what it means to be persecuted. It's a historical fact that the church spread like wildfire in the midst of this persecution. We have to ask why. I think part of it is when the Romans watch Christians be persecuted and yet still maintain a sense of joy and peace and hope, it's because they believed in something so deeply that they were able to withstand even the greatest of threats. It's why one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church. The more they killed the church, the more the church grew. And so John gave them this book, this revelation as a gift to say, this is how you are going to face it, because it's going to get worse. And here's how you are going to be able to stand firm in the midst of this oppression. So what? What did John give them? What he gave them was a view and a vision of the exalted and cosmic Jesus, right? We see in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter. At the beginning of the book, you see that he's the Alpha and the Omega, and he actually repeats that same line at the very end of the book. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And if you can view Jesus as the first and the last, the reality is you can face anything, even death itself. So the question then is, why is John here? Why is he on this island? In verse 9, he says the reason for his exile on the island of Patmos, he says it makes it clear that it wasn't his choice. Okay, this isn't a vacation. He didn't go here to relax. Right? He chose to be here. Um, Patmos itself is a rocky and rugged island about six miles wide and ten miles long. It's about 40 miles southwest of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. And John states that he found himself there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, and these are the words of John Piper, Jesus was so real and precious to John that he would rather be exiled to a barren island than not talk about Christ. John had gazed at Jesus long enough to become like him in this way. Obedient fellowship was more important than the comforts of life. So this vision comes to John on the Lord's Day, perhaps uh, while he was engaging in prayer or worship or fasting. And then John has this incredible experience. He uses the phrase, I was in the Spirit. And that actually occurs again. It happens to him in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 2. And actually, on two other occasions, chapter uh, 17 and 21, which we'll get to eventually. But John says he was carried away in the Spirit. Now, the question is, what, is this, what does this mean? What does it mean to be carried away in the Spirit? Was it a way of describing some sort of divine inspiration, or does it refer to like a trance-like experience in which he received visions from God? I think it was probably maybe a bit of both. In any case, John was so deeply immersed in the Spirit that he saw this vision of the risen Christ, and it absolutely messed with him. 
which we'll see in a minute. Now, it should be noted that John uh, wasn't seeking to experience this. He wasn't trying to manufacture this experience. And the reality is there are no formulas that we can do to sort of usher this act or move of God. That being said, I believe that God still moves in this way today. I want to share a brief experience. A few of us in this room actually were together when this happened. Uh, recently, we had a session retreat, which is basically a weekend, uh, a Saturday from 9 to 4 o'clock. We give up our Saturday as a staff, and we meet with our, our elders. And it's not always the most fun. Um, you know, the idea is, you know, one of the beautiful things about being Presbyterian is that we have, we have elders that oversee our staff and our ministry. Um, but we also, those elders rotate in and out, so we have new elders each year. Um, but we have a staff that stays pretty consistent and sort of does a lot of the ministry of the church. And so sometimes it's good for us to get together, to get to know one another, and sort of work out what Pastor Stan calls the dance, right? The dance between staff and, and our elders. And I'll be honest with you, the first five hours of this meeting, I was like checking my watch. It was taking a really long time. I kept looking at the clock. Um, it was a typical session retreat. Um, then something changed after our lunch hour. We began to pray. We began to seek the Lord, and it felt like we kept hitting this wall. Like, we're not getting anywhere. We're frustrated with each other. We can't seem to hear the voice of God. And then there was this moment, this beautiful moment, where um, we, we were listening to one of the elders share a bit about the book of Revelation, in fact. And then um, one of our uh, staff members read a verse, and then Stan said to her, he said, read that verse again. And as she read it a second time, it was as if the Holy Spirit fell in the entire room. And I can't explain it to you, right? It's kind of like um, if you have one of those crazy experiences, you want other people to have experienced it as well, but you can't really describe it. It was one of those moments where we sense the tangible uh, work of the Spirit enter into that room. And Pastor Stan, teary-eyed, said, read it again. And she read it again. And then one of our other elders read another passage. And God spoke to us very clearly and helped cast a vision for where we are going to go this year. And it really made the rest of the meeting worth it, right? It was a long meeting, but that made it all worth it in the end. Here's the thing. Those kind of things don't get manufactured. That was two hours preceded by prayer and pleading with God to speak. And the Spirit moved. I believe God continues to do this today. He continues to do this today. And, and just like we just spent a whole uh, five or six weeks in the Way series about practice, about putting our faith into practice, this is what happens when we live a life where we are consistently trying to live out and become more like Christ, is that we become more in step with the Spirit. That's the way Paul puts it in Ephesians that we walk in step, and he speaks to us. And so John is in the spirit when this happens. He's given this crazy vision. So let's pick it up in verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, 
the book of Revelation speaks very specifically. Jesus speaks specifically to each one of these churches, and they're all very unique churches. Um, we're going to be doing that in the coming weeks. So we're going to look at each one of these churches, and I believe that each one has a way in which even our congregation can learn something from or God can use to speak to us as well. And it'd be kind of like if God had a specific word for Eastminster in the same way that he would probably tell us something different than he would from the church down the street. Let's say Life Church, okay, or Vima Church, or New Spring, or Firsty Free, or whatever local churches are around us. There's probably be a unique word that Jesus would have for each of us. And so we're going to look at those in the coming weeks. Now, the next section is where things get a little funky. All right, we've got lampstands, we've got a man in a robe, white hair, flaming eyes, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, okay? Um, in a commentary I read, C.B. Caird said this, he warns us in this moment to not unweave the rainbow. And what he means by that is that he's, in other words, John uses his allusions not as a code in which each symbol requires separate and exact translation, but rather for their evocative and emotive power. John has seen the risen Christ clothed in all his attributes of deity, and he wishes to call forth from his readers the same response of overwhelming and annihilating wonder which he experienced in his prophetic trance. And so imagine, right, seeing a vision, being caught up in the spirit and seeing a vision of the risen Jesus in all his glory. Trying to describe that to someone It'd be almost impossible. And so what John is doing is he's using what we see often in apocalyptic literature. He's using metaphors and pictures to try to invoke the emotion of the experience. Right? It's like I went and I've seen the Grand Canyon. Being in front of the Grand Canyon is one of the most epic and beautiful sights. It's hard to explain it. Right? Even by looking at a photograph, you can't even fully understand the grandeur. In the same way, I don't think John could fully express what that moment was like. And we know this a little bit because of how he reacted. What does he do? He falls, right? He's, he's prostrate on the ground. He's face down on the ground. Um, is this a normal phenomenon? Do we see this other places in Scripture? We actually do. So in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, uh, the prophet Daniel has a similar experience, right? He sees a vision, falls on the ground in fear, and then is strengthened by a touch, from a heavenly being. And then he receives additional revelation that serves to interpret what he saw. And it can be noted that John's response is not one of terrified retreat, but it's like a reverential falling to the feet of his master. He was in complete and utter awe in this moment. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. In verse 8, it's Alpha and Omega. And so my question, I have two questions tonight. The first is, what is your Alpha? Right? What is your beginning? Where do you start Right, because we know that Jesus existed before the beginning of time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Right? Jesus has always existed beyond. He's the very beginning. He's the first. 
What is our first? Because here's what we do often. As humans, we have struggles, right? If you've ever been to a good doctor, they won't merely treat the symptom, right? But they will try to understand the root of what your problem is. Recently, I've been re-watching the show House. It's like a medical drama, right? This kind of quirky guy with a cane walks around, and every episode kind of follows this formula where, like, Somebody is sick, but they don't know why, and they think they know what it is, but then they realize it's not that thing, and then they try a series of tests, and it's not that thing, and eventually the guy swallowed a toothbrush or something, right? It's, it's always like a weird twist at the end. And uh, this is often what I think happens is in our Christian walk, is we oftentimes try to treat the things, our problems, the things we struggle with, and we try to grab those things and reach after those things, thinking that they will make our life better. Perhaps another metaphor be in terms of counseling. If you see a good therapist, they may help treat your depression or anxiety, but if they don't just help you discover what's underneath that, oftentimes that depression will resurface and come back. I think sometimes we need to think about what is first, because if we don't understand that Jesus is the first we will oftentimes try diagnosing our problems by simply putting in temporary fixes. This will make my life better. If I only had this, it would make my life a little better. The second is the omega, that Jesus is the end, that he created all things, that all history moves towards him, and that he will judge all things in the end. This is the doctrine that he is the, not only the creator, but he is also the final thing. And it's important that we take these truths, these, these big ideas, and that we live with them. That Jesus must be our omega point. Right? We can either make him the means and something else the end, or we can make him the end and everything else becomes the means. Because right? I think each one of those situations, if you, if you make him the means... Right, that produces a very different outcome than if you make him the end. There are things I think all of us could relate to that if we thought, if I could just have that, my life would be complete. I have to have that or my life has no purpose. What are our omega points? What are the things that we are drawn to that we think if we could just have those things, then everything would fall into place? In the beginning, I think many of us approach Christ as a means to reach those omega points that we are not getting to. And our life, actually, when it begins to fall apart and when it begins to crumble, it's because we are not getting the thing that is our point. And so we say, maybe Christianity will help, or maybe Jesus will help, and we sort of attach that onto our life, thinking it will make our life better, and that maybe Jesus will help us get what we really want. But we can't do that. Because in the end, Jesus is the end. He is the omega. He is what is the end. Um, here are some examples of this in scripture. Moses, okay, raised by an Egyptian princess. And because of that, he becomes educated, which a lot of the Israelites did not have access to that kind of education. And so he served God by being a leader. He wanted to be a leader. And so what he does, he goes and he murders an Egyptian. I don't know if you know that about Moses. He had a shady past. Right? He, he kind of did some shady things, and he, he murders this Egyptian, and then all of a sudden, um, he's trying to prove to the Israelites, look at what I have done. I should be your leader. You should follow me, and they absolutely dismiss him. They say, oh, no, this is terrible. 
and they're upset with him. And so what does he do? If you know his story, he floods to the, the wilderness in isolation. He's all alone. Um, and he basically thought his life was over until he's 88 years old. He thought he was serving God. But in the end, his end was that he wanted to be the leader of the Israelite people. And his scheme that he put together did not work. And so at 88 years old, Moses feels like his entire life is a failure when, boom, God speaks to him in a burning bush. And in this, God says to him, I'm going to make you a leader. In spite of your flaws and your inability to speak, I'm going to make you a leader. And to his shock, Moses discovers that his real strength is obeying God when you're weak. And that a broken man is much more attractive to God than a proud man. When leadership was the end and God the means, he got neither. But when leadership was the means and God the end, he got both. Another example is Jonah. Jonah has a little bit of a different trajectory. Right? Jonah thought he could serve God by going and condemning the Ninevites, which was the great enemy of Israel. Right? He had a political agenda. Behind what he was trying to do, his end was that he wanted to sort of bring uh, his people to prominence. And so the twist in this story is that when he goes um, to condemn the Ninevites, what happens is, is the Ninevites repent and God spares them. Jonah gets angry and says, I am angry enough to die because God showed mercy to these people. Which means basically that his life felt like had no meaning. Jonah had a political agenda. He made serving God the means and the political goals of his people was his end. And here's the point. There are many more examples of this in the scriptures. But God is not negotiable. God being the end is not something we can barter with. It's the reality of life itself. That Jesus, in his incredible power, is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And we are called to reorient our will towards his. So I ask the question again, what is your omega point? At the end of a novel uh, written by Elizabeth Elliot called No Graven Image, it's about a woman who... I uh, went into the jungle to do translation, Bible translation, and at the end of the, at the, end of the novel, uh, everything goes wrong. Her entire life's work is ruined, and so everything that she spent her life preparing for and doing is destroyed, and she confesses this. Now, in the clear light of day, I see that God, if he was merely my accomplice, he had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he has freed me. If God was a means to an end, he betrayed me. But if he is the end, he has freed me. In the end, we serve God not to get things, but to get Christ himself. And as I've wrestled with this, I'm like, okay, what does this mean and for us? What does this mean? What's the word that Jesus wants for us today? I came across a letter that Eugene Peterson wrote to his son, Eric. And in this letter, he wrote this. Why am I so uncomfortable in this world? They are all on my side. They are all courteous and affirmative. But it seems to be gospel without death, without suffering, without ambiguity. Everything smoothed out and ironed with a lot of starch in the collar. The reality of where we live in this time in history is that we live in a place where Christianity oftentimes feels comfortable. 
In fact, it can sometimes even earn you social capital. We live in a culture here in East Wichita that has a lot of wealth and affluence, and we live in the most peaceful time in history, right, the world has ever seen. And yet, I don't know if you've observed this, but there is, for many people, a profound discontentment and meaninglessness in which they live their life. And so I think underneath all of that, there's got to be something going on. And how would our life look if we truly believe the things that Jesus tells us? How different would our life, how different would our life look if we chose um, to truly believe that our neighbor could be saved? Like really believed it. Believed it to the point that we would have courage to share the good news with those around us. What would it look like to practice radical hospitality as a sort of assault on our Western ideology, right, where we have really tall fences but really small dining room tables, where we kind of live in our own little bubbles instead of bringing people into the life of Christ? What would happen if we took Jesus at his word and lived in a way that we truly believed what he said? Revelation helps us do that. It actually helps draw us into a deeper discipleship. It draws into a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and, and what's going to happen in the times to come. What would it look like for us to live this out? I'll close by asking you this. Whether you're a follower of Jesus, whether you're here and you're far from God, whether you're here and you're a skeptic or you struggle with doubt, wherever you're at on your faith journey, I want you to hear the words of Jesus' invitation to you. This is, comes from Revelation 3. We're going to cover it in a few weeks. But I want you to hear the words of Jesus. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they will me. Stay with me. Jesus is inviting you to make him the end. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. Will you invite him in? Let's pray. Lord, we are the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. As we wrap our minds and hearts around that reality, may it encourage us and empower us to live out the things that you teach us. May as we study this, as we study this uh, book, I pray that you would illuminate the things that you would have very specifically for our church, for our community, the ways in which you're moving around us that maybe we can't see, the ways in which uh, we need to draw closer to you, and maybe things we need to repent of and move away from. Jesus, help us, convict us, draw us to you. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.